Well, I brought a test for you today if you'd like to take it. It's called the marshmallow test. Interested? Interested in taking the marshmallow? This is a good marshmallow, okay? I promise you. It's already been consumed. Well, this one hasn't been consumed, but, but I have a whole bag, and they've been tested, and it passed the test. It's, it's a good marshmallow. Let me tell you about the marshmallow test. Maybe you've heard of this before. A psychologist uh, first did this test in the 60s. Uh, it's been repeated, and the, the results have been confirmed over and over and over, and here's how it works. You take a small child, say a toddler, well, maybe not a toddler, a, pre-child, a pre-elementary age child, so a preschool age, and you bring them in a room all by themselves, a table and a chair, and you place a marshmallow down on the table, and here's what you tell them. Look at the marshmallow. Wouldn't you like to eat that marshmallow? Yes. Yeah, and, and you can have that marshmallow. It's yours. You can have it. Oh, good. Now, wait, wait, wait. You can have the marshmallow. You can eat it if you'd like. Or you can wait. And I'm going to leave the room. And when I come back, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you another. So you can either have one now or two later. And then you walk out the door and shut the door. It's fascinating. Um, you can see it on YouTube where, where people have done this experiment. You should check it out. It's really interesting. Um, one particular, boy, that was good. I landed that right there. This one particular video, they, they had a, uh, the, you know, of course, they're videotaping it, and they've got these little children, and, and they do it several times. And these kids are there looking at it, and they pick it up, and they smell it, and then they lick it. And they, they hold it close, and they squeeze it, and then they put it down. And once in a while, other kids will pick it up, and they're like, take a little bite and a little bit more. And then there's always that one little kid. This was me. just instantly just eats it, you know? So what, here's, here's what they find. We struggle as humans with the ability to wait. To wait. Oh, we can know that there's more coming. But we struggle to wait. And these little children, they, 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 have, they, have, they identify this, this skill to wait with, a, with different terms. Um, one person called it an emotional quotient rather than intelligence quotient, EQ rather than IQ. And what they say is that, that if you have a high EQ, if you can wait for a later reward, you're much more successful in life. That might be true. But my point of bringing that up is this. We're going to talk today about Christmas, and, and, and I want us to understand for the next couple of weeks together what Christmas is about. Christmas is about hoping. It's about waiting. It's about waiting for what God is going to do. There was a time when the people of God were waiting for the Christ to come. He's already come. Praise the Lord. He came in a manger. Grew to be a man and a savior. But even now, we wait for him to come again. We wait for his second coming. And following Christ, submitting our lives to Jesus, is much about waiting and hoping. And so what I want us to do today is, I, I, for the next three weeks, we're going to step back in Scripture into your Old Testament. 
And we're going to see a people who are waiting, who are expecting, who are longing for God to work. And I want us to, to kind of come along parallel to them. We're separated by 2,500 years. But the waiting is the same. The hope is the same. The struggle is the same. The comfort is the same. And I want God's Spirit to bring us hope and to bring us comfort. Just to, just to continue with this idea that this is, man's, this is man's path. This is his journey, waiting and longing. I want to read something to you, and I don't often do this, but, but this is from a, uh, an Advent uh, study that, that I came across as we came into December. It's written by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died in a Nazi prison camp in the 1940s. He was a pastor in Germany. And he was a, he was a writer. And one of the things that he wrote before he was arrested by the Nazis for resisting them, one of the things he wrote was an Advent study, a, a, a looking forward to Jesus' coming, celebrating his first coming and looking forward to his second. I'm going to read to you a section of what he wrote, and then I'm going to read to you a letter that he wrote from a prison cell in Germany to the love of his life. So hear what he writes. Before he was arrested, he wrote this. The Advent season is a season of waiting, Our whole life is an Advent season of waiting for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Celebrating Advent means being able to wait. Waiting is an art that our impatient age has forgotten. It wants to break open the ripe fruit when it has hardly finished planting the shoot. But all too often, the greedy eyes are only deceived. The fruit that seems so precious is still green on the inside. And disrespectful hands ungratefully toss aside what has so disappointed them. Listen to this. Whoever does not know the blessedness of waiting, that is of hopefully doing without, will never experience the full blessing of fulfillment. So Bonhoeffer says, that we, as we follow Christ, we must wait for him. Now, what struck me about this was to read what he wrote, the love of his life, from a prison cell in 1943. This is long after he wrote that Advent study for his church. Listen to what he wrote. Be brave, my love, my dearest Maria. Even if this letter is only a token of my love this Christmas season. We shall both experience a few dark hours. Why should we disguise that from each other? We ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot. We are assailed by the questions of why. Over and over in the darkness I ask why. And then, just when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that we can hardly stand it, The Christmas message comes to tell us that all ideas are wrong and that what we take to be evil and dark is good and light if it comes from God. And this does. Listen what he writes. This is December 1943 from a Nazi prison cell. He says, my eyes were at fault. That is all. 
God is in a manger, wealth in poverty, light in darkness. No evil can befall us. Whatever men may do to me, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world and our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, December 1943. About a year later, he was hung and died a wicked death. Great introduction to Christmas message, right? Listen, let's just... Let's just speak truth. Life here on earth can be challenging. Following Christ can be hard. It's not all marshmallows, folks. Watch the television screen, see the ads that come across on the internet, and things look pretty good. But you and all, you, you, we all know that, that it's misguided, it's misleading. Life can be challenging, and we need hope, not marshmallows. In November, I spent a great amount of time in the book of Isaiah. Here's how I read the Bible. I challenge you to to try this. I do what I call a deep dive in Scripture. I choose a section of Scripture, and I read it over and over and over and over for a month. And in November, myself and a a few other fellows, we, we chose Isaiah 40 through 53. That's 14 chapters of Scripture. 14 chapters. And so we, we read two chapters a day. So I read 40, 41. The next day, 42, 43. The next day, 44, 45. 46, 47. 48, 49. You get the idea, right? 50, 51. 51, 52, 53. There we go. And when I get to 53, I go back to 40. And I read through it again. So I'm reading through this passage over and over and over and over. And November was Isaiah 40 through 53. And I kept coming back to Isaiah 40 and thinking, this is a great introduction. This is a great picture of Christmas. It's a picture of God coming through, God invading, the mighty Savior bringing hope. So turn with me to Isaiah 40. We're not going to read all whatever it is, 28 verses, I think, 31 verses. We're not going to read all 31 today. But I do want to look at Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. And I want to read it because it is God's Word. It's much more important than anything I can bring. And I want us to see the reason for hope. Why it is that we can have any kind of confident expectation in God's future faithfulness and presence. Because that's what hope is. Hope is not, I'm going to buy a lottery ticket and I hope I win. Hope is not, I hope it doesn't rain. That's not hope. That's wishing. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confidence. It's knowing that God is going to come through and do what he said he's going to do. But it revolves around waiting for him to act. So let's read Isaiah 40. By now you've found it. Verses 1 through 11. And allow God's word now. Allow God's word to speak to your heart. Follow along. Isaiah writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended 
that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And Isaiah said, what shall I cry? And the voice answered, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. As I already said, this is what hope is. This is a confident expectation that that God is going to work. It's it's not, oh, I hope this happens. I, I wish that it wouldn't rain. Oh, oh, maybe this won't happen. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is knowing that God is going to work knowing that that he has a plan, that he has a purpose, that his person will come through, that you can trust his character. Let me just shine some light on Isaiah 40, what's happening. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Okay, this is just a little bit of trivia about the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters. Well, there's 66 books in your Bible. Do you realize that, right? And chapters 1 through 39 are all about judgment, They're all about that God is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. Chapters 1 through 39. Coincidentally, maybe, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are speaking of the judgment of God, that God is going to bring surrounding nations of Assyria and Babylon to take the people, God's people of Israel, going to take them captive into slavery and they're going to spend years a generation is going to die off primarily in slavery that's chapters 1 through 39 but then in chapter 40 it's like a lever switches it's like you turn a whole new page and starting in chapter number 40 through number 66 It's comfort, 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 consolation, hope, hope. Let me just give you a sampling of this. Turn back to Isaiah 30, verse number 1. I just want you to see 
the, the kind of words that are used in the first 39 chapters. 30, verse number 1. Listen what God had Isaiah say to his people. Oh, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. I love that verse. Doesn't that wrap us up? Who carry out a plan, but not God's. Who make an alliance, but not of my spirits. Oh, see, this is man's problem. And look over verse number nine. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. This is God saying, I brought you out of Egypt and you've rebelled against me. And so God's going to bring judgment into their lives. And I'll just show it to you. Look, go back to Isaiah 40, but we'll look back a couple of verses into 39. Look at verses 39, 5, and 6. Chapter 39, that is, 5 and 6. Isaiah says in 39.5 to the king of Israel, Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 39, verse number five. Number six, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who come from you, whom you father, shall be taken away. So we see here what God is saying to his people. In your rebellion against me, I must chasten you because I want you back. God is saying, I want you back. So if we just looked at verses, or chapters 1 through 39, it can be a little bit heavy. But when you get to chapter 40, Good news. Comfort, comfort. And that's what I want us to look at today. The hope in any circumstance, in all circumstances, there is hope. Verse number one. Look, now, I want you to understand that this term, comfort, comfort, chapter 40, verse number one, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, is repeated over and over and over in this section of of Isaiah. People call this the chapters 40 through 66, they call this the book of God's comforts. If you're discouraged, if you're down, if you're having a rough time, go to Isaiah 40 and start reading till God encourages you. Because it is comfort and consolation and encouragement over and over and over. The word comfort occurs 13 times in these chapters. It's over and over and over. And the thing that's interesting about this, in verse number 2, look what it says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly. In this section of Scripture, in these 12 verses we're looking at, eight different references are to one person speaking to another. There's eight different times in these 12 verses that that the the hearer of this is called to speak comfort to one another. What's that tell us? It means, it tells us that we need to be encouraged. There is in us a need for other people to come and say, not, oh, it's going to be all right, don't worry, play the lottery. Not that kind of hope. 
But God is going to be faithful to you. God is going to keep his words. In 12 verses, eight different times, speak, cry out, let your voice proclaim. Over and over and over, we are told here, the the, the hearer is told to speak encouragement to one another. In all circumstances, the encouraging truth is God. Because this reality, now hear this. Hope is no stronger than the one hoped in. You better think about that. Hope is no stronger than the one hoped in. Don't you hope in a person other than Jesus Christ? Don't you hope in a father or a mother? Don't you hope in a child? Don't you hope in a husband or a a wife? Because hope is no stronger than the one you hope in. The only one worthy of your hope is the Lord God. And that is who Isaiah is pointing people to. God is telling Isaiah, you go to my people and you tell them to hope in me. Now, politically, uh, just, just to put this in context, politically, what Hezekiah, what King Hezekiah did is, is things were getting stressful. The Babylonians, the Assyrians were threatening him, putting Jerusalem under siege, and Hezekiah said, I'm going to run to Egypt and get help. That's what he did. Hezekiah, and that's what that meant when it said, you make other plans, you make plans, but not plans with me. That's what that meant. Our hope is in the Lord. No person, no person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort, comfort my people. He spent 39 chapters calling out their unrighteous living. And now God says, you're my people. You're my people. As a matter of fact, he says to Isaiah, you speak tenderly. You speak tenderly to them. What what they're going through is ended. They've received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. Now, let me say say a word about that. That doesn't mean that that the the, the phrase double for all your sins is a Hebrewism that just means it's complete. That doesn't mean that God sort up their sins and said, okay, now you get two spanks for every one of the... That's not what it means. Double portion means complete. It doesn't mean two, heap, two heaps of mashed potatoes. A double portion, in, in the Hebrew mind, a double portion of mashed potatoes would mean you get a full, full serving, is what it means. So they got their full serving of God's judgment. So verse number three. A voice cries. Now this should be so familiar to you. A voice cries. In the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Mm. Your your New Testament alarm should be going off. Who is this? Who is this? All four Gospels, all four Gospels got what everybody thought was a madman coming out of the desert, dressed in camel skin with grasshoppers crawling out of his beard. And what is he saying? This, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Isaiah didn't know it. 
He didn't know what he was even referring to. When he brings hope, he didn't even realize what he was even talking about. Oh, he had some idea, but he did not fully understand what this means. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. Here's what Isaiah is saying. Help is coming. Hope is no stronger than the one you're hoping in. And help is coming. Hope is coming. And these phrases, basically, we would say today, roll out the red carpet. That's what that means, okay? Make straight the path, every valley lifted high, every mountain leveled. Roll out the red carpet because God is coming. Praise the Lord. Hope is coming. Verse number five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Imagine. Imagine if you could meet God. I mean, you know, God is invisible. He's a spirit. You can't see him. But imagine if God, like, came to earth and just materialized in front of you and you could talk to him and and you could see, like, what he would do and you could hear what he would say. Wouldn't that be awesome to experience that? To, like, see God in the flesh. Now you should all be thinking right now, uh, Lo, um, didn't that happen? Isn't that called Christmas? Yeah. But this was written 700 years before that. You see what this is? This is the people of God saying, oh, there'll be a day where we can see Him, where He'll have flesh, and we can be with Him. And the glory of the Lord will be seen. This is the majesty of the incarnation. This is God becoming a man. And this is one that we have hope in. Verse number six. Just, I, need, I need to move along a little bit here. Verse number six. A voice says, Christ. See, here's another one of these voices. Okay? See, this is all through these 12 verses. Run out and tell the world. Run out and tell the world that God has become flesh and come to the world, come to the earth. Go tell the world. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And I want you to see the contrast that's laid out here. The contrast that's, 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 that we're meant to see. That, that people are not permanent. That people are inconsequential. People don't really matter, quite honestly, in the great scheme of things. People are inconsequential and mortal. They they come to an end. Look what it says. All flesh is grass. And its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. Think about grass. 
You throw grass seed on the ground, cover it with some hay, water it once in a while, you come back in like a week on, an, on the right day in the fall maybe, okay? Those of you who know landscaping probably want to correct me right now. But I know there's a time of the year where that grass grows quick, okay? But here's the funny thing about grass. Go out to a field. I'm talking like out west, like a field of, of hay or barley or wheat or something. And watch what it does. The wind blows and it just, right? Just blows with the wind. Go to your house today and take a, take a four by eight sheet of plywood and just pitch it out on your yard. And then in a week, come back and lift it up and look underneath. That grass, as far as I know, now again, you can correct me later, but it's dead. It's wiped out. See, this is the nature of people. Inconsequential. They don't last. They sway with whatever the thought is of the day. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will do what? Will stand forever. This is where our hope is, in the mighty God. Let's see what Isaiah writes about this God. Verse number nine. Go up on a high mountain, Isaiah. Oh, Zion, all the people of God now. Now he's spreading it out a little further. Be herald of good news, all of you. That's what this, when it says lift up your voice, again, this is another one of those times where this is plural. Lift up y'all's voice is what it actually says. It's plural. All of you, lift up your voice with strength. Oh, Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of, jo- of Judah, behold, look at, gaze upon. These are different ways you can translate this word. You look at your God. Behold, The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. We're seeing a contrast here between people and God. And this is why you and I cannot put your hope in people. Don't put your hope in a president. Don't put your hope in, a, in an athlete, in an actor, in a pastor, in, a, in anything other than God. Because people come and go. People get knocked over. People blow back and forth. Behold your God. Look what, look what Isaiah says about God. In verse number 9, the very end, just, just little, little tidbits. You can look what this means later maybe, or some of you already know. It says, behold your God. Literally there, it's the word Elohim. Behold Elohim. Elohim is a name for, honestly, gods, rulers. But here, we're talking about the God, Elohim. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. When the Bible speaks of Elohim, it's speaking of the creator, the maker, the almighty ruler of all of the universe. And what's interesting about this, in verse number 10, Isaiah uses different words for God. And I, want, I want to just point them out. Behold the Lord God. Here the word Lord is Adonai. 
This is a Hebrew word that means ruler, master, father, leader, king. And then it says God. Now you might notice in your Bible that it's all in capital letters. G-O-D, all in capital letters. This is to distinguish it from the word Lord right before it. Typically, this word is translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is the name of God that he revealed of himself in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh. But here the translators use G-O-D because they wanted, they wanted to distinguish between the other word Lord, Adonai. So here's what we got. Behold your Elohim, the maker of everything. Behold the master, the king, the king of the universe, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, loyal, loving God. That's who Isaiah is pointing us to. The one who made everything, the one who rules all, and the one that loves you. This is our almighty God. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who, who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. When you bring it to Christ... When you place it on Jesus, who takes it to the cross, the almighty, the covenant-keeping, ruler, master of the universe, says you are his child. This is hope. This is a confident expectation. This is you coming to my house and asking for whatever, a cup of tea, a glass of tea, or a tea kettle full of money. You come to my house, I might give that to you. But if my child comes to my house and says, Daddy, can you give me your right arm? I'm a sinful man, and if I'm able, I'm going to give it, right? And you're the same way, Dad. You're the same way, Mom. God calls you his child. Now, he knows what's best, and you may say, well, I asked him for something one time, and it didn't happen. He knows best, and honestly, I probably wouldn't give my child my right arm because that probably wouldn't be best. But I give him what's best if I'm able. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might. This word might is interesting. It's almost always, almost always, I'd like to say always, and I'm afraid I'm wrong, so I'm going to say almost always always paired with an arm. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Now, why might it be that every time in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, 
Why every time when this word might is used, I'm doing it right now, is an arm referenced? Because that's how this warrior time period understands strength. He's strong for you. He's strong enough for you. He can do what's best. He can do what's right. His reward is with him. His recompense before him. So when he comes, he comes to reward. So your sacrifice is not unnoticed. Your prayer is not unheard. Your faith is not unregarded. He comes with reward. He comes with recompense. These two words mean wages and repayment. He comes as a giver. He comes gracious. God is no taker. He doesn't owe you anything. God is no man's debtor. You don't outgive God. He comes as a, it is his nature to give. Especially to those who are his children. It is his nature to give. He will give us forgiveness. He will give us his presence. He will give us his love. Because of verse number 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. So what, where, where we go now is a savior shepherd. This, this picture of this loving shepherd who tends this flock, but it's kind of odd. We, we are so familiar with this phraseology that we think it's happening all the time, but it wasn't, that he gathers lambs in his arms. Oh, there were occasions where shepherds would gather lambs in their arms, but that's unique. That's the exception to the rule. The exception would be the shepherd that carries the sheep around, the lamb around. There's a reason for that. There's, a, there, there, there's been something that's prodded that kind of activity. When a shepherd picks up a lamb, that's not right. There's something that's wrong. The lamb's supposed to be with its mother. But Jesus is the kind of shepherd who cares for us in that way. He tends his flock like a shepherd, but not just any old shepherd. He's the kind that gathers the lambs in his arms. And more than that, he carries them in his bosom. And he gently leads those that are with young. This is hope that you can hope in. Now, I'm telling you, Every good Jewish boy knew Isaiah 40. Now, not all of them had memorized by word for word, although some did. But they all knew it. They all knew it. Especially a man who, when pressed, people said about him, he's a righteous man. I mean, if when you face difficulty. When you face a challenge, you know, you hit your thumb with a hammer. Or you lose all of your investment in some horrible scandal. Your reaction. Do people look at it and say, that's a righteous man right there? That's the kind of guy Joseph was. When his world came crumbling down, they said about him, that's a righteous man. 
Go to Matthew chapter 1. Each week, what we're going to do between now and Christmas, we're just going to glimpse into the Christmas narratives and understand what it is that these people who were walking it, what they understood. Matthew chapter 1, this is the account, the birth of, of Jesus Christ, verse number 18, that it took place in this way, and, and we have this, this account laid out for us. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was, bound, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just, you can also translate that righteous, man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Savior Shepherd, the mighty God has done this. It's from the Holy Spirit, verse number 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, Isaiah now is being quoted. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is Elohim, is with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. Folks, he had hope a confident expectation in the mighty Savior. Now, what's going on in your life today? Is it all Christmas decorations and all fun and all candy canes and tinsel? Is that all it is? Probably not. Why? Because you're human and you're in a human condition, right? And we are, we are here on this planet that is cursed with sin, and we're experiencing it all around us all the time. And it's tempting to look for hope someplace else. It's tempting to look for hope from your bank account, from your job, from your whatever. It's tempting to look to your husband or your wife or, or a future husband or a future wife or your parents or, or maybe my kids and their athletic career or their, their education or whatever. It's tempting to look at all these other things and I'm not saying you abandon those things. I'm not saying we, you know, we burn all of that and we don't do anything. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that our hope only is directed to the Lord God. Elohim, the maker. Adonai, the master. Yahweh, the loyal, loving, covenant God who calls you his child. Let's look there. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the hope that we can have today. We look to you. We look unto you, Lord. In obedience to your word, behold, we look at our God and we worship you. 
Father, bring this home for each person today. As they leave here, remind us all of where our hope lives, where our hope resides. Protect us from misaligned hope. May we look only to you. Thank you for coming to the earth, Lord, to fulfill your plan. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.